Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that this morning that you would give us a glimpse of your holiness. Would you give us a glimpse of your glory? But we pray that even with that glimpse, that we wouldn't be cowered by it, but we would know that Jesus has made a way for us to stand before you. So would we draw near? Amen. So when we were in seminary, Michael and I had this roommate named Ethan. And Ethan and Michael and I shared this absurd love for misusing metaphors and distorting English and speaking in really, really specific allusions to things that maybe no one else would understand. It was a lot of fun. So I'll give you an example. One day, Ethan came up to me and said, Justin, let's go get coats. And it was July. But I knew that coats were tacos because coats and tacos have the same letters. Didn't have to explain it to me. I just knew. This was how we talked to each other. I know, right? And it was all great fun, except that it wasn't fun for any of the poor souls with normal brains who didn't like to speak in anagrams or maybe people who didn't have encyclopedic knowledge of Tolkien, or maybe people who didn't like to make puns based on all the different kinds of Greek uses of the genitive. It was absolutely impossible to understand. See, I just made one. No one could follow it. Hebrews can be a little bit like that. There's a lot of name dropping, a lot of allusions to things in the Old Testament all throughout Hebrews. So it's helpful if we're going to kind of sit in this passage in Hebrews 12 for us to do just a little bit of work to to think about the the structure of Hebrews and a little bit of work just to see how we got to this point in Hebrews 12. So as best as we can tell, the author of Hebrews wrote this letter because he had an audience that was facing hardship and persecution. And it seems like a lot of them were holding fast, but it also seems like a lot of them were wavering under that persecution. seems like maybe even some had walked away from the faith. It doesn't really spell out exactly what the pressure is or what they're facing, but it seems that a lot of them have actually been sort of pushed back toward Judaism. We think that it was a time when Christians were not being, no, that's backwards. Christians were being harassed and persecuted, but Jews weren't, at least not to the same extent. So with that little bit of a, I don't know, an appeal for safety, there was a draw, a draw for some Christians to go backwards to Judaism. And a lot of them, I think, probably didn't think that that was a big deal. It was the same Old Testament. had the same God. A lot of the same stories. And so what would be the big deal if they did go back? Or if they just moved over? The author of Hebrews wanted them to see specifically the dangers of walking away from Jesus. And to do that, he makes this case. He keeps building this case. He goes through all of these comparisons. Jesus compared to these Old Testament figures, these Old Testament icons. Jesus, greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the Levitical priests. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Last time I preached about Melchizedek, I called him the cotton-eyed Joe of the Old Testament, and you guys laughed and made me feel really good. Where'd he come from? Where'd he go? We don't know. Talked about how Jesus' sacrifice is greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system because it was perfect. It was once and for all. And he did all of that because he wanted to show his audience, he wanted to show his congregation that if they left Jesus to go to the old covenant, they would be leaving behind everything. Because even those heroes and those symbols in the Old Testament, if they're separated from Jesus, the one that they're pointing to, they become meaningless. 
they don't have that weight anymore. Well, there's one more greater than in Hebrews that we're going to focus on today. It's a little bit different. It's not Jesus greater than these Old Testament figures. It's Mount Zion, better than Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is that scary picture that we get in verse 18, uh, verses 18 through 20. Let me read that again. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. After Israel had left Egypt and passed through the Red Sea, God led them through the wilderness to this mountain, to Sinai. This is the place where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And so at this point, Israel has seen God's power. They've been led out of Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea. God's given them manna. God's given them water from a rock. Now they're going to get a very particular glimpse, just a glimpse, of God's glory. Even veiled in a cloud, they're going to get a glimpse of God's glory. But they're not going to be able to draw near to it. So God actually, in Exodus 19, has them build a barrier around the base of the mountain so no one will pass it. He says that even if any man or even if an animal passes, they have to be put to death. And the reason is that the holy presence of God is not going to abide anything that is unholy. Israel even has to take a few days to consecrate themselves and purify themselves just to stand next to the fence and watch. So here's what it says in Exodus 19. Sounds a lot like what we heard in Hebrews. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. It's an utterly terrifying picture of God's glory coming down onto the earth. And in that picture, you see a theme that's actually a theme that shows up over and over in Scripture. The presence of a holy God is too much for unholy people. They can't come near. So think about when Moses sees the burning bush. When he sees the bush and he goes to investigate, what's the first thing that God says to him? Do not come near. This is holy ground. There's another story later in the history of Israel Uh, during King David's reign. The Ark of the Covenant had been stolen by Philistines, and David is really eager to bring that back into the tabernacle where it belongs. So they send a wagon. They have a procession. The wagon's carrying the Ark, but the wagon hits a bump, slides over. The Ark of the Covenant starts to fall out, and an Israelite, who presumably had good intentions, puts his hand out to stop it so the most holy thing in all of Israel doesn't fall on the ground, and he dies. He's a holy God. You can't touch that. Or you might remember from our ordination service, Bishop Quigg preached from Isaiah 6. We've got this vision of Isaiah in the throne room. In the presence of God in the vision, there are these heavenly creatures, these burning ones who are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah is terrified because now that he's actually seen a bit of the glory of God, he's come into contact with this holy one, He says, woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Israel's history is full of moments like this, when the holiness and the glory of God is too much for any unholy person, even for Moses, to handle. But the author paints this picture because he wants to make a point. He says, you haven't come to what can be touched. You haven't come to Sinai. You've come to something even greater and more glorious than that. Throughout Hebrews, he uses this language of approaching, of drawing near, of coming near. And it's always to talk about coming near to the presence of God. Well, here he says, you haven't come to the foot of a mountain outside a fence where you can't go in. All you can do is stand and watch and shake in fear, unable to go into the presence of God because the penalty for that is death. No, something greater than that. You've come to the heavenly city of the living God. You've come to the presence of God itself. You're not at Mount Sinai outside the cloud, but you're in or on Mount Zion. And I love this. If you think about the, the things that his audience is probably going through, people who are scared and anxious because they're persecuted, in the Hebrew world, in the Hebrew mind, Zion is the highest place. It's the safest place. It's that fortress or that stronghold where no enemy can reach you. So the author of Hebrews is telling his people, you feel like this scared and helpless and anxious flock. You don't know what's going to happen next. You feel vulnerable. But here's what you can't see. Hebrews is all about visible things that are kind of participating in invisible realities. Here's that invisible reality that you can't see. You're in the city of the living God. With so many angels that you can't count them, with all the saints that have come before you, you can't see it, but this is what's real. You can't see it, but your worship when you come together is joined to their worship. Because Jesus, your mediator, is in the heavenly places, and you're joined to him. And so wherever he goes, you go. And it's not just true when we're gathered together for worship, but it's actually true every day. Because we are joined to Christ, and Christ has gone up into the heavenly places. He brings us with him. I know this is a really, if you think about it, this is a really funny picture. Because probably your everyday life doesn't feel like partying with immortals and angels and saints. I mean, you think about the most comically boring day of your life, where you wake up groggily a little bit before you wanted to. You make your coffee, and I've had a lot of your coffee. It's not holy. A lot of you make bad coffee. Then you eat this quick breakfast, a little bit greasy, makes your stomach feel a little bit sick, and you get in your messy car, and you go to your job, and every time you stand up and you sit down, you make that sad noise that we all make because everything's stiff. Then you go home and you pay your bills and you do your thing and you make your dinner and you overcook it and you put your salt on it and then you go to bed. Like, that's your most comically boring day. But even that day is lived in the presence of a holy God. We miss the glory of it and kind of the mundane, repetitive nature of our everyday life. But that's what he says is true. You've been ushered into the presence of a living and glorious and holy God and the fire of his glory, this consuming fire, hasn't devoured you because you've been sprinkled with blood. Not the blood of Abel. Abel's the first murder victim, right? His blood cries out for justice against his murderer, Cain. No, you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. His blood doesn't cry out for, for punishment or for retribution. His blood cries out that you've been forgiven, that you've been made pure. 
His blood is the blood that purifies you and cleans you so that you can go before a holy God and not be devoured by his glory. Just as an aside, this is such a great passage for a day with a baptism. Because this baptism is actually Emma's entry into the city. It's her sharing in Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It's her sprinkling with the blood of Jesus that purifies her and that makes her holy because Jesus is holy. And so for the audience of Hebrews, for us, for Emma, this is the main point. Before, you couldn't go into the presence of a holy God, but now Jesus is your bridge. He is your bridge from unholiness into the presence of the living and holy and glorious God. That's the reality that maybe you can't see or smell or touch, but that's what's true. And if that's true, then no matter what kind of persecution the audience here is facing, no matter what might happen to them physically, no matter what their enemies might do to their bodies, they're in Zion, which means that they are eternally safe in the presence of God. Evil or wickedness cannot touch them. Same is true for Emma. The same is true for us. And there's no greater assurance than that. What the author of Hebrews wants his people to know is that if they left this reality for safety, to run away from the things that were threatening them, they'd be walking away from the only mediator who could actually bring them into that true safety, into that holy, righteous presence. I know this, this passage isn't really referring to this, but there is another story that I couldn't get out of my head as I was preparing for this. This is a story that's really familiar to us. It's Jesus in a boat with his disciples. A storm comes up, and the disciples panic because they think they're going to die. And so in their panic, they wake up Jesus, and they beg him to do something. And so Jesus wakes up, calms the storm, and then he turns and he rebukes the disciples. He says, where's your faith? feels a little bit like an unfair rebuke because I think we can all identify with the disciples. At least they eventually asked the right person for help. I don't always do that. But if you read it, it looks like there's one point that's really driving Jesus' response to them. One point among many, maybe. It's better to be in the middle of a storm but in the presence of Jesus than to be outside the storm and outside of the presence. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews wants his people to see. It's better to be in danger and in persecution and strife, but in the presence of God, because that's where you're safe, than to live a comfortable, peaceful, complacent life to the end, but without his presence, without being with him. We need that same reminder. I know it's unlikely that we face the same sorts of pressures or persecutions that this audience was facing. But that just means we have a different set. We have different pressures or dangers or maybe worries or doubts that hang over our heads. So they could be cultural pressures from our world, could be doubts or some sort of darkness or fears or anxiety. It could just be that there's sin that burdens your heart with shame and guilt so that when you look at yourself, all you see is your own unworthiness. And so you look at yourself and you think, how could I be allowed to come into the presence of a holy God? Whatever those pressures are and whatever direction they're pulling you in, whether it's away from the faith, whether it's towards some other hope, or just towards little distractions that will numb you or help you to forget those pressures, even for just a moment, here's what Hebrews, and especially this passage, says to us. 
The holiness of God is not a death sentence for us because we've been purified by Jesus' blood. And if that's true, then we can draw near. We can do it boldly. That's what the author of Hebrews tells, tells us. Let us with boldness draw near to the throne of grace. And we can draw near bringing all of those pressures and dangers and worries and doubts that tug at us. We can draw near carrying those things with us. Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our priest, our mediator, has walked in weakness. He knows what it means to be tempted, which means that he is ready to hear those things. He is able to sympathize with our weakness, Hebrews says. He's walked in those things, and so he's not repulsed by us when we bring them to him. And his touch doesn't kill. It heals. Right? Remember that story of the Israelite reaching up to catch the Ark of the Covenant and dying because he touched something that was holy? Well, now remember another story. There's a woman who has been sick for years. And in the middle of a crowd, as Jesus passes by, she reaches out her hand, and she just touches the hem of his robe, and she's not consumed. She's not killed. She's healed. Jesus has invited us here into this place, to this table, to reach out our own hands and to receive healing, to be healed. In our gospel reading, it said that Jesus is the narrow door. Or at least Jesus has come through the narrow door, but that's what he meant. Jesus is the bridge. He's our great high priest. And so in those moments when it feels like you are also in your own storm, pray for the faith to cling to him. Pray for the ears to hear his words, for the eyes to see his glory, for the boldness to draw near even though he is holy. You've come to Zion, the city of the living God, to the new Jerusalem. He has brought you into a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Evil, wickedness cannot touch you here. You're safe because Jesus, your mediator, is also your anchor in the heavenly places. That means that no storm can blow you away from there. So now, even while we're waiting for those things that we're getting glimpses of now to be full when Jesus returns, may this holy God, who is a consuming fire, burn up the unholiness and the unrighteousness and the doubt and the fear and the anxiety and the despair and the sin and everything else that has been covered up in Jesus' blood. May he burn those things up so that only this new life that he gives will remain. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.